Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney. Pratt & Whitney is committed to working smarter, cleaner, and greener today for a more sustainable tomorrow. Learn more at prattwhitney.com. And by Dohop. Dohop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn how to unlock unlimited connections simply at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Ben Valdanza, and I'm at a loss to explain what's happening to airlines now that the third quarter has finally ended. I'm just kidding. We will do a lot of explaining. Low-cost airlines are going to be reporting losses, not just weaker earnings, but real losses. And that can be tough to explain when airplanes are full and there's still a whole lot of travel. Right, Scott McCartney? That's right, Ben, and happy October to you. It certainly is a month off to a very bumpy start on several fronts. Ben, we have listener questions about what's going on, actually lots of them. We have some brutal industry headlines to talk about. We seem to be having a major transition in airline economics that's going on right now. And I can't think of a better person to explain it than you, my friend and teacher. And we have answers to all the many questions out there. And on top of that, we'll explore the biggest reversal of the week. I'm not talking about Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey. I'm talking about that other are they offer on couple. Delta Airlines and its SkyMiles program. Cutters have to cut, right? But Delta Chief Executive Ed Bastian said he thought Delta had cut too much and was reevaluating new rules for elite level qualification. Ed wants to go back to December, find a blank space, baby, and just shake it off. Rivals are offering status matches like crazy. We'll talk about that. And some Delta frequent flyers said, we're never, ever getting back together. Taylor could tell Delta a lot about karma. And speaking of answers, Ben, we have a terrific guest on the show, Steve Dixon, the former head of the Federal Aviation Administration. Steve knows the challenges, problems, and successes better than anyone. And we're going to have a very candid and compelling conversation about the future of air traffic control in this country. I think it's a very important interview and I hope everyone involved in this business at any level will listen and listen up. We can't keep doing things the same way and expecting a different outcome. So Professor Ben, trailblazer of the ultra low cost carrier, the most shocking news for many of late has been that both Spirit Airlines and Frontier Airlines announced expected losses for the quarter that just ended Saturday. The actual results will be reported in a few weeks. But Spirit, which did have losses in the third quarter last year, said it now expects its operating margin for the three months ended September 30th to be around negative 15%, a figure that stunned people. Spirit cited an overhead bin full of issues. On the revenue side, weaker demand and more sales from competing airlines, 
along with disruptions from storms that caused cancellations. Revenue will be down 4% to 5%, Spirit said. And costs are up with higher fuel prices as well as higher pilot costs from the contract Spirit signed with the Airline Pilots Association earlier this year. It's a similar story at Frontier. Frontier expects its pre-tax earnings margin, which had been estimated at 4% to 7% of revenue the airline collects, will now flip to an expected loss of 4% to 7% of revenue. Frontier said fuel had been running 20 cents to 25 cents a gallon more than expected, and Frontier, like all airlines, buys a lot of gallons. Other airlines have lowered guidance, but will still likely be profitable. So what's the difference, Ben? Why are Spirit and Frontier going to have losses this quarter when July, August, and September seem to be really strong travel months? Well, Scott, I don't know that I know the exact answer, but I think I can have some insight. First, the third quarter has always been a struggle for the real low-cost carriers. We used to joke at Spirit that September was the only month with six weeks because it started on August 15th. (laughs) The idea was that summer travel tends to really dry up in the middle of August, and airlines that carry even a modest amount of business travel tend to make up some of that loss in that period because as kids are going back to school, businesses start traveling some. So airlines like Spirit and Frontier, who carry almost no business travel, have nothing to make up that loss. So both airlines, I think, have tried to minimize flying in that time, doing more maintenance, encouraging more pilot vacation and things. But that reduces the ASM line. So when you're looking at costs per ASM, you have a smaller denominator And that hurts costs as well. So I really think it's a cost story, not a revenue story. The reason I say that is the revenues are kind of expected to change. But in past years, the costs have always been able to come down to keep the airlines either profitable, or at least break even. But with fuel and new labor contracts this year, they're not there yet. So I think that's what it is, Scott. I don't think their business model is completely broken right now, but I think there's some recalibration needed. So, Ben, it's, it's interesting. We've had uh, several questions from readers who recall uh, that United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby kind of blasted the ULCC business model. I think this goes back to October last year, almost same time of the year last year, 
And he said the ULCCs were doomed because of rising fuel and labor costs. So the question that people are raising is, was Scott Kirby right? What do you think? Scott was directionally correct, for sure, in that the cost difference between the legacies and the ULCCs was narrowing as the ULCC costs rose because of fuel and labor, and that's right. But I don't think he was right about the model on its own being doomed. There are still people who want only the lowest fare when they travel and are willing to accept the kind of compromises that Spirit and Frontier ask them to make. You know, I think it's really interesting because what we're really talking about is how we want to define low cost. If costs are high, it's hard to be a low cost carrier. Uh, but the reality of this business is it's not a question of being low cost. It's a question of being lower cost than your competitor. And so if the ULCCs, even though their costs are going higher, can remain lower cost than other airlines, uh, then they do have that, that cost advantage. They'll maintain that cost advantage, uh, even though their costs have gone higher. So are they low cost airlines or are they lower cost airlines? I think you're bringing up a great point. Maybe we need to get off cost. Maybe we need to say, have lots of high fares, have some high fares, and have no high fares. <laughs> All right. Well, Mr. Kirby, I think, would, would love to be able to say he has a high fare airline. <laughs> That's right. Well, Scott, another perhaps related news item to mention, John Redmond resigned as CEO of Allegiant Airlines, and Maury Gallagher, the chairman and former CEO, is back for yet another turn as CEO. Redmond is a hotel guy who came in as Allegiant has been developing a hotel resort in Florida called Sunseeker. Redmond only lasted a little over a year as CEO and Allegiant didn't give a reason for his sudden departure. Any insight there, Scott? No, I don't think we really know yet. Uh, he was there a short period of time, so you imagine there's some kind of clash internally. Something It just, just wasn't working. He wasn't getting the airline business or getting the airline business as Maury Gallagher wanted him to get it. Um, or uh, they, they say the hotel is still on track. Um, so I don't think it's a question of, uh, at least yet, of them abandoning the hotel so they didn't need John Redmond. But we'll see. I do think it's related in the sense that um, there is all this pressure on the ultra-low-cost carrier model. Uh, Legion is part of that. And, uh, and so um, there may have been disagreements about how they're going to respond um, to the new revenue uh, environment. It's uh, it'll be really interesting to watch. In his mid seventies, uh, Moore Gallagher is probably still 
totally up to the challenge, but uh, I wouldn't expect he'd want to be doing it for a long time. I agree. And one thing different about a legion that is still true is that more of their flying has no nonstop competition. One thing we didn't mention about Spirit and Frontier was the increased pressure from the bigger airlines on price. And Allegiant doesn't feel that as much. Mm -hmm. That said, they're still in the airline business and as a low-cost guy or no-business-fare guy, that's tough right now. Yeah, yeah. And who knows? They may be feeling some competition from Breeze and Avello um, in terms of uh, small-town traffic. So we'll see. Let's talk a little bit about the strains in the premium world um, with Delta's top customers. As we mentioned a few weeks ago, Delta announced it was switching elite qualification completely to spending requirements. No more requirements for mileage flown or flights taken. The idea was to reward the best customers, i.e. the ones who pay the most money to Delta. The new standards would thin out the crowded elite ranks, downgrading people who fly a lot on cheap tickets. There were also cuts in lounge access on the co-branded American Express Platinum Card for Delta customers. As you might imagine, many Delta customers hated the move. It's one thing if an airline raises prices or even devalues frequent flyer miles, but take away the status that I'm accustomed to and I worked hard to earn every year, that's just a jet bridge too far for many. Alaska and JetBlue opportunistically swooped in with status matches to win over angry Delta customers. Alaska even did one better with a, I thought, really curious flight announcement. Next May, Alaska is going to start flying between Atlanta and San Diego nonstop. Talk about kicking them when they're down. Atlanta, San Diego, very much a prime Delta route. Delta CEO Ed Bastian couldn't take the backlash and late last week announced he thought the airline had gone too far and would rethink the elite qualification change. So kudos to him for admitting a mistake, but it remains to be seen what plan B will be. It may simply be small steps to get to the same end result over a couple years rather than doing it all at once in one giant leap. In the end, Bastian did go back to September again, in this case, if I follow Taylor Swift lyrics, and said, please don't fall in love with someone else. And you're the best thing that's ever been mine. Take that, Delta Frequent Flyers. One more travel strain, Ben as if there's not enough. The Miami International Airport found, quote, extensive structural cracking, close quote, in some concrete supports for the SkyTrain at the main terminal. The train is suspended indefinitely and shuttle service has been instituted. That's a terminal with a lot of long walks, and no doubt those walks will be even tougher with shuttles chirping at people to move aside. If you are connecting anytime soon in Miami, be aware. As Taylor Swift would say, if she happened to be connecting in Miami, ha ha. So I'll walk out of here tonight, try to go on with my wife. And two follow-up notes on New York Times columnist David Brooks' $78 meal at Newark that we talked about last week. 
Brooks did admit that he messed up. And our friend Scott Marowitz pointed out that Ben said he wouldn't be taking the train over to Terminal A, which is where Brooks had his hamburger. And it turns out you can't take the train to Terminal A, Scott says. The new Terminal A is beautiful, but the train doesn't go there, but to a parking garage far away. Yes, you can walk to it, but I believe this is a major design failure at a time when we are putting more and more focus on public transportation. That's kind of astonishing, although I think I recall that uh, Newark has plans to replace uh, the train, and so um, surely Terminal A will be a stop on the train. But that will certainly leave, as Taylor would say, teardrops on many travelers' guitars. Scott, I'm a little worried that you're so familiar with Miss Swiss. <laughs> I, I have a daughter who's a major Swifty, but uh, but I do enjoy a lot of her her songs and appreciate her uh, her songwriting talent. Okay, no, that's kind of fun. Well, let's start with Scott Mayerwitz's insight. I'm shocked, actually, that the train doesn't go to A now. And I'm sorry to listeners for being so out of date on that airport. That said, I'd like to go see the new Terminal A, since Scott says it's so nice. But I don't want to have to connect from C to A for sure. Yeah, and, you know, we've been trying to get Rick Cotton from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey uh, on the show, and I, and I hope we will soon. Um, Rick's been the, uh, the driving force behind the, the rebuilding of LaGuardia, the rebuilding of Newark and, and JFK. So I'm sure Rick will have a good explanation for uh, why uh, there's no train at Terminal A right now. And, you know, the Delta situation with their frequent flyers is so similar to what happened long ago at U.S. Airways in the early 2000s. U.S. Airways essentially said customers who are traveling a lot on cheap tickets aren't as loyal as those paying a lot for their tickets, and Airways was skewered for that. And Delta's kind of done the same thing. It's interesting to me that Ed Bastian has come out and says, maybe we went too far, but didn't talk about what that meant. That puts them I think, in an uncomfortable position. Mm -hmm. Are they going to reverse everything, some things, or nothing, or just apologize better? Essentially, what they were doing makes economic sense, and you can't make an omelet without cracking some eggs, and there's no way to do what they're trying to do without better differentiating between customers who give you a lot of money and customers who are just in your seats a lot. It's an uncomfortable issue, but it's a real one for airlines like Delta. Yeah, and fascinating that uh, the Delta 
decided to respond when American had made much the same change and, uh, and, and stuck out the storm. Well, Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors. We want to thank Doohop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Doohop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity, create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue, lower costs, and maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Doohop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Visit dohop.com. That's D-O-H-O-P.com. And we want to thank Pratt & Whitney. At Pratt & Whitney, the pursuit of more sustainable aviation is foundational. For decades, Pratt & Whitney has been at the forefront of revolutionary advancements in aircraft propulsion technology. And by working smarter, cleaner, and greener, today they're committed to supporting the aviation industry in its goal of reaching net zero CO2 emissions by 2050. Learn more about Pratt & Whitney's smarter technology, cleaner fuel, and greener business at prattwhitney.com. Ben, I'm very excited about this interview. It's time now to bring in Steve Dixon, the former head of the Federal Aviation Administration. Steve Dixon was the 18th administrator of the Federal Aviation Administration, serving more than two years until his resignation in early 2022. He took over the FAA when the agency was reeling from the 737 MAX debacle and brought stability and integrity. Before that, he was Senior Vice President of Flight Operations at Delta Airlines, where he worked for nearly 28 years. He spent 11 years in the U.S. Air Force, including duty as an F-15 flight commander, instructor pilot, and flight examiner. He has been a passionate advocate for and driver of safety advancements, both while at Delta and while running the FAA. Steve, it's a pleasure to have you on Airlines Confidential. Well, thanks, Scott. And uh, Scott and Ben, it's great to be with you guys today. I really, uh, really appreciate the opportunity and uh, uh, hopefully it'll be a constructive dialogue. I'm sure it will. Absolutely. So, Steve, you recently co-authored an opinion piece with our mutual friend Randy Babbitt, another former FAA administrator, basically taking the Department of Transportation and I think Secretary Buttigieg to task, along with airlines, for finger-pointing about the cause of increased travel delay. You guys said consumers are the ones getting poked in the eye, and you voiced strong support for government-industry collaboration to solve problems and continue to improve safety. What prompted you guys to speak out? Well, I think, you know, in general, if you look at the history of uh, commercial aviation in the United States, and the improvements over the decades in efficiency and particularly in safety in the last 25 years or so, you know, all of those uh, improvements have come as a result of industry government uh, collaboration. And I think that one of the things that gets lost sometimes is, yes, the FAA 
and the Department of Transportation are regulators, but the FAA is also an operator. And so its, its operations directly uh, interface and integrate uh, with, the, with the airlines and with really all of the operators in the national airspace system. And, and so, you know, when we look at the complexity of the system, the amount of uh, commercial space launches that we've seen, a dramatic increase over the last few years, uh, the fact that, you know, we aren't building new airports, there are certainly limitations on the system. It doesn't really serve anyone very well to take a kind of a transactional approach to these issues. It's very important to understand that, in this case, the government uh, and the, the private sector in the form of the uh, airlines, their success is, is very intertwined. And so it's, it's much more productive for us and sustainable, frankly, for us all to work together. Well, Steve, I'm curious as to what kind of reaction you've gotten to the article, or do you think the article will have any impact? Well, I hope so. I mean, again, this is, uh, I I think, uh, you know, again, the opinion of two uh, former leaders of the agency and also uh, experienced industry veterans. I, I think we tried to approach the issue uh, not in a confrontational way, but in a way that we could be uh, constructive and and certainly acknowledge that uh, there are times when uh, the regulator, whether it's DOT or FAA, has to, uh, to take a, a tough stance in terms of enforcement. But it is really one of the tools that's in the toolkit and we really are much more successful, whether it comes to safety or operations or uh, just about any topic you can think of, if we try to work together on solutions, because the solutions don't lie within the government uh, and they frankly don't lie within the, uh, within the air carriers in this case. It really is uh, a situation where we all need to work together. So uh, Ben and I talked to Randy earlier this year, both both at an airline summit conference I helped organize at Duke University and, and on the podcast where he pointed out that the FAA budget when he was administrator back in 2009 to 2011 was larger than it is today, adjusted for inflation. Is, is the FAA adequately funded? Well, uh, again, consistent and predictable funding are really limiting our ability, and they have for a number of years to execute on the most beneficial aspects of, of uh, you know, improving the, the infrastructure around modernizing uh, the air traffic control system. And so, you know, I would agree with Randy that, you know, the, the inability of uh, the government and the FA in this particular case to uh, make the kind of commitments that it needs to make to vendors to be able to uh, see a project through over multiple years, uh, that's, that's been a problem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the way that the government has to procure systems, you know, if, if I'm working at a, at a technology vendor and I have a system that, you know, would be beneficial for the FA to adopt, you have to put so many caveats into those contracts that uh, they end up in the end being uh, very expensive to execute on. Uh, and of course, right now, you know, we're seeing a, a potential 
government shutdown, you know, a continuing resolution is probably the best case scenario here. Yeah. And that's just no way to make the kind of multi-year capital investments that need to be made in new systems. Hmm. Well, we've talked a lot on the show about the impact of more severe weather and the shortage of air traffic controllers. How do you see air traffic control right now? Are airlines going to have to keep canceling flights in New York? And might that expand to other cities too? Well, again, uh, you know, we are... Uh, we're running a very complex system here, and there are certain constraints uh, that we see. One of them is in the New York airspace. Uh, there's a lot more demand for uh, for flights and for traffic than uh, the system can support during during peak operations. Uh, and we've seen some of this in post-COVID down in Florida as well. Now, uh, again, weather is a constraint. Whether or not there are uh, system-wide shortages of air traffic controllers, there certainly are pockets where, uh, you know, we, we are short uh, on staffing within the agency, and the agency is in the process of addressing that. But again, we see shortages of, you know, airports in some cases. We see more demand on the airspace. I talked about commercial space launches, for example. That's creating... Uh, a lot of uh, pressure on the airspace in the southeast around Florida and increased military operations as well. So all of, you know, we only have one national airspace. And to the extent that all of these limitations, whether they are limitations on flight crews or, uh, you know, maintenance availability of aircraft for the airlines or imbalances in controller staffing, weather, all of those things have to be uh, addressed and, and overcome on a, on a scheduling basis, but also uh, day by day uh, in the operation. This gets back to the importance of collaboration between the carriers and the FAA. And, and that has been in place for a number of years, and it needs to continue. So you and Randy conclude the, the piece with, um, the quote was, the unfortunate reality is that air travel is, is going to get more challenging due to those constraints. How bad is it going to get for travelers? Well, we certainly don't want uh, the, what we're seeing during uh, high demand periods like, uh, you know, over the Thanksgiving holidays or in the peak of the summer or during spring break. You know, we don't want to see those kinds of, of things become the norm. And we want to work together effectively to do things like share data and, uh, and share a common uh, understanding of what's going on uh, in the national airspace uh, at a given point in time. We want to we want to continue and build upon those successes. And and uh, you know when I talk to individual airlines, it's very important that the airlines understand that you know they are one operating entity within a large system. And so you know sometimes airlines will come to the agency many times without realizing it, sort of working at cross purposes, if that makes sense, because they've got different priorities for, uh, you know, for their business. And we have to remember that the FAA is, is trying to uh, balance the needs of all stakeholders, airlines, general aviation, uh, space, drones. Uh, 
We've got advanced air mobility coming down the pike. And so, you know, the, all of those demands are being placed on the system. And we don't slot control airports in the United States uh, as a general rule. I mean, certain airports are, we have slot controls at a limited number of airports, but unlike uh, Europe, for example, that's not the norm. And so we have to be able to manage those exceptions uh, effectively. And that's where the uh, collaboration between the agency and uh, and all stakeholders really is so important. So, you know, these investments in, in new systems are going to enable that to occur, you know, better in the future. And that really is the solution is, is really working together so that we can integrate and improve rather than point fingers at each other. Well, one solution or potential solution that you've talked about is moving airspace around Newark from the New York TRACON, which is woefully understaffed, to the Philadelphia TRACON. But Senator Schumer has blocked this. Can you talk about that and how this kind of simple reallocation might help the airspace for New York? No, thanks, Ben. That's a that's a great point, and I'm I'm glad you raised that issue. You know, the agency has tried to address the issues around uh, stable staffing in the uh, in the New York airspace for a number of years. And frankly, we we know how complex that airspace is with three major airports in very close proximity to each other. And of course, you've got significant operations at Teterboro and elsewhere uh, as well. So the agency had taken a number of actions over the last decade plus to try to address the performance. And uh, we were able to determine through data again that about 65% of the delays historically uh, in New York emanate from that Newark sector. There's a plan on the table. uh, And in fact, the construction work has already been done to reallocate that airspace over to Philadelphia approach, it would be seamless uh, to the carriers and other operators. And I believe it would help serve to uh, defragment that airspace a little bit, allow New York approach to focus on the uh, on the other sectors, and frankly, uh, would lead to a greatly improved performance uh, in the New York area and improved staffing levels. So hopefully we'll be able to uh, to push that on through uh, it was unfortunately not executed on while I was at the FAA because of COVID, because we weren't doing training within the uh, within the facilities, because we had to uh, we had to keep the daily operation open, and we wanted to minimize the number of folks who uh, who might be affected by the COVID nineteen pandemic at the time. But now is the time to execute on that, and I believe it would lead to significant improvements, not only in the Northeast, but really up and down the East Coast and around the country. 65%, that's that's a staggering number when you think about it. Absolutely. But, no, and, and again, the, when, you, when you really get into the numbers and into the delays, there really is uh, an opportunity to improve how that airspace is managed. And, uh, and again, uh, credit to the NACA leadership at the time and uh, the uh, leadership at, at uh, both in Philadelphia and New York. Everyone saw the, the benefits 
of reallocating this airspace and uh, and hopefully uh, it will see the light of day here at some point in the not too distant future. Mm. So, Steve, I've suggested that what we really need is sort of a Manhattan Project type effort to fix the air traffic control system, um, a smart, strong group within government, but with some independence and clout that can tackle the huge challenge of modernization and also fixing the staffing issue. Um, for as long as I've been covering this, more than 25 years, we, we keep doing the same thing and expecting a different result. We're always talking about modernization and always talking about air traffic control staffing. Yet, you know, the, the FAA's budget request this year was only a 4% increase. It just seems like it's not going to change unless we do something different. Um, what, do you, what do you think about that? No, I, I think that that is, uh, you know, a, a great approach, Scott. And I, I think that, you know, there are some, there are some structural issues that w- would need to be addressed as part of an effort like that. One of them we already talked about, and that's the ability to be able to commit to and fund multiple year capital improvements, Yeah, uh, particularly when it comes to technology. And, uh, you know, the... Uh, so there, there needs to be uh, more flexibility, and again, Congress would have to act to change how the FAA is funded, how uh, uh, budget decisions are scored, uh, give the FAA some more uh, financing tools in its toolbox to be able to commit to multi-year projects, because you can't do these kinds of things with, uh, with annual appropriations. So that's, that's number one. Number two, you know, I, I think we all recognize the importance of accountability and oversight. But in the current environment, you know, it's very difficult for the agency to make the kind of decisions that it, that it needs to make to move the system along uh, the way that it's currently set up. I, there was a proposal a number of years ago on uh, spinning off air traffic control into, into uh, either a, a private entity or a government corporation. I'm not going to make take a position on that. You know, I, I don't think anybody really knows what the right answer is, but I do think that there needs to be a greater degree of independence for the FAA and for the FAA administrator to be able to make the kinds of decisions that need to be made on, on these projects. And uh, I think it's certainly within our uh, wherewithal to do it, but I think that there's a different type of accountability structure that could be put in place. Uh, you could probably look at some other federal agencies that, as examples, and there have been a number of proposals that have been put on place to be able to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Well, Mike Whitaker has been nominated to be your replacement. And we're both excited about that. You probably know, Mike. What advice would you give him? Well, uh, first of all, a great question, Ben. And I, I think that, uh, you know, Mike is, a, is a, uh, obviously an experienced executive. With, uh, he was the deputy administrator, and uh, he's got industry experience both in the airline sector and uh, in uh, among some of the they're not so new entrants anymore, but certainly in the advanced air mobility community. So I think he is a, a really good look at the playing field. He just to show the kind of leader that he is when he was at the agency, he checked out as a pilot 
And so, you know, he's willing to, to roll up his sleeves and, and really learn uh, what he needs to. And I've had the opportunity to work with Mike a number of years ago, and I think he's an excellent choice, and I think that he will bring uh, much-needed uh, stability uh, to the administrator's office and to the senior leadership team. In terms of advice uh, for him, you know, he knows the Washington environment, and so he's probably got a little bit of an advantage over some who would be coming into the federal government from elsewhere in the private sector. And, uh, and I think that it's, it's really important to work at the collaboration that I talked about, both with industry and between offices at, at the FAA. You know, it's a, it's a constant uh, point of emphasis, at least it was for me, to make sure that all the offices within the agency are understand what our goals are, what our values are, and how we're going to execute to be able to achieve those goals. And uh, the more he can get those offices to, uh, to work together effectively, uh, the better off uh, the agency will be and the better off the aviation community will be. In that Washington environment, it seems like air transportation should be as much a basic infrastructure issue as roads and bridges, but it hasn't gotten the same political support. Um, should the industry or Congress or the White House be sounding the infrastructure alarm more for the skies? Um, delays aren't, aren't only an economic concern, it's also an environmental concern. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the term infrastructure. You know, if you look at the infrastructure uh, funding that was passed early in this administration, I believe there was $25 billion for, uh, for aviation, but $20 billion of that was for airports. And, uh, and some of it was for terminal projects that really don't get at, you know, the efficiency of the system uh, beyond the checkpoint. And uh, the $5 billion that was left for the agency was specifically uh, uh, designated for older control towers. So there was no mm. modernization uh, money in there at all. And I think that, uh, you know, the difficult proposition that the, uh, the aviation system and the FAA face uh, is that, you know, roads and railroads and even airports are things that the public can see. They are tangible. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people, uh, both inside and outside the government, look at that as the aviation system. And as we know, you know, what's happening in, in the skies it's not magic. You know, it, it, it requires people, it requires technology, it requires systems, and, and that's what has been getting uh, short shrift over the last few years, and that's where the emphasis needs to be placed. Well, Steve, thank you for your service, both uh, in the commercial world and uh, especially in the government world. And thank you for your insights on this discussion. Uh, I hope we can do it again as, as things develop, but I think, I think we've all learned a lot and, uh, and really appreciate uh, your time today. Well, thanks, Scott and Ben. And uh, again, I appreciate uh, the opportunity and uh, wish you both well and uh, look forward to, uh, to future dialogue. Thank you. Sounds great, Steve, and thanks very much. We'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential.
Promotional consideration provided by thearchive.net. Celebrating 20 years with a fresh new look and over 60,000 items of AvGeek goodness. It's the hub of air transport history, and you're welcome aboard. Thearchive.net. Well, thanks again to Steve for some very important understanding of the challenges we're facing with air traffic control and the FAA. Scott, listeners were on top of the news with questions this week, and that's great. Thomas from Dallas asks about Delta Lounge overcrowding. Thomas has high status on United and American, and while lounges are more crowded post-pandemic, he hasn't had real problems getting in. He browses a lot of aviation forums and finds, quote, Delta, however, seems to have a much bigger problem with lounge overcrowding. Why does Delta have a bigger problem than United or American? Have an idea, Scott? Well, Ben, I think there are multiple reasons. Um, I think you start with supply. Delta may not have as many lounges and key hubs as competitors, or the lounges themselves have fewer seats and less square footage. Then look at demand. Delta and American Express have been generous with credit card lounge access, and the top American Express cards are very popular. This has been very lucrative for Delta, and apparently too for American Express but maybe too popular. Delta has tried to curb that lounge access as we talked about, and now they're reevaluating, but there's clearly a problem here. Like everything else in the airline business, crowding comes down to the intersection of supply and demand, right? That's right, Scott. And I'm sure Delta's lounge square footage isn't nearly as big in Dallas as it is in Atlanta or Minneapolis, for example. I think you're right. It's got to be a size of supply and total demand. And that's why they're making the changes that are upsetting people. People want to be part of a lounge and they don't want to be told you can't come in here when for years they've been allowed access. Yeah, this is a really tough problem. When you look at Delta's financials, so much of, if not all of, their profit comes from uh, credit card mileage sales. Um, So they got to keep that American Express card popular. Uh, American Express is funding a lot of Delta's operation and uh, and, and contributing um, most of Delta's profit. Uh, So it's a hard balancing act. It really is. Well, this is a weird thing to talk about, Scott. But years ago at Spirit, we stopped allowing our seats to recline. And we fixed them at sort of a recline position, but you couldn't move it. And initially, we started getting lots of complaints that I can't recline my seat. But then eventually, we started getting almost an equal number 
of comments of it's great that the person in front of me can't recline on me. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm saying that is problems like this with the clubs, a transition problem. They're not a long-term problem. So you're going to take some costs. Some people are going to squawk, but you got to do what's right about sizing and pricing for the lounges so people who pay for it can have a good experience. Yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, that if the overcrowding eases, uh, the people who still have lounge access will appreciate it even more. Okay, Ben, another question that we've already addressed some, but maybe there's more to say. Brandon from Austin asks, Hi, Ben and Scott. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Regarding Southwest 50 off sale this week, what do you think this means for the industry as a whole? Is fall and winter demand that bad? Do you think it's just Southwest seeing weakness or the whole industry? Is there an overcapacity issue now after the past couple years of supply constraints? With fuel prices rising, airlines need to raise fares, and if they're unable to, they'll have to reduce capacity to the current demand levels. What does this mean for the next six months to a year? It's a great question, Brandon, but I think it comes down to smart revenue management. Let me explain. Southwest sale is for flights pretty far out, meaning not the next two weeks, all right? And so what they're doing is they're looking at their booking curve and they're saying, I want to build a base. And so they're trying to get people booked for flights now. So when it gets closer to departure, they won't feel that they have to discount as much at exactly the time that people who might be willing to pay a little more might be showing up. So I think the idea of building that base far out so you can protect the higher revenues that come close in is a tried and true strategy and Southwest has a lot of capacity to fill, and this seems pretty smart of them. And I don't think it suggests that the world is falling apart. Well, very good. Good to hear. Ben, I think we have filled in all the blank spaces, baby. We'll be back next week, even if Taylor isn't. Well, thanks for listening, and thanks, Scott, for educating all of us who are regular sweeties. <laughs> we'll see you next week on Airlines Confidential. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.